The list of the Paramitas as a framework for contemplation in our practice. Today is the day for looking at the, the third Paramita, uh, Nikama Paramita, or the, the virtue of renunciation. And um, renunciation is probably not a popular word in this culture. <laughs> and for many people, when they think of renunciation, they think of you know, shaven heads and robes and caves and, you know, it's a kind of far away, removed idea. But the basic idea of renunciation is letting go. And when we look at it in that way, then it's uh, not only applicable, it's essential. And it's not only applicable for monks and nuns and people who have a gone forth lifestyle, but for everyone. Because it's the basic movement away from something, something unharmful or something not needed or something not useful. And so we can look at renunciation in terms of simplifying our life. And that's not a bad thing to look at, you know, because, you know, some of the complexity that we deal with is navigating a life which has got too much stuff and too many things and too many details and too many commitments in it. And so just trying to figure out, well, you know, off the spectrum of everything that's happening, what's needed. And then, you know, when we look at the amount of stuff that we have, you know, all of the stuff that we have, it needs dusting, it needs cleaning, it needs maintaining, and it needs organizing, it needs places to live and places to put away. You know, is it all needed? You know, so when I was speaking with my friend Barbara, and she just came back from um, shifting her mom into an assisted living and had to clean out of her mom's condo, and she was like, oh, my goodness, you know. And then I see what my dad has in his apartment, and I think, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so Barbara came back from shifting her mom and thought, I'm cleaning my stuff. You know, this is just, it's just, it's just completely unnecessary to have so much stuff. You know, it doesn't help. It's not needed. It's not helpful. So, you know, renunciation can be at the level of simplifying the things that one has and giving away what's not needed and cleaning up on that level. And that's an important level, you know, to look at, you know, what kind of stuff do we have and what kind of routine stuff one has and what kind of complexity that one has that actually one can let go of. And I think periodically, you know, for each of us in our lives, it's useful to contemplate, you know, how can I simplify my life so that it actually allows me more time to do the things that I find really, really important, but often not urgent, you know, and uh, put some perspective or capping on the things which are constantly grabbing our attention, saying it's urgent, 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 but actually it doesn't have that much importance in terms of our deeper sense of spiritual well-being or life, sustaining life energy. So this level of contemplating one's life and contemplating letting go is not an insignificant level and there might be a way of spending a part of uh, time, it might not necessarily be today, 
but just having a kind of inventory of the kind of things that you have in your house, the kind of structures that you have in your routine, the kind of way that your life is set up and whether they are actually conducive. You know, how many pairs of shoes do we need? You know, how many freezers do we need? How many... goes on and on. Now, obviously, living in a climate like this, where you've got snow, is different than living in a tropical climate. So the kind of, you know, just the clothing thing in order to keep yourself so that you're warm is orders of magnitude more complicated just to start with than when you're in a tropical climate and it never gets colder than 60, you know. So, you know, that thing itself is just, you know, and what's needed in the house. It's hard to live in a cave. I, when I ride my bike to my dad's, I pass by, there's a homeless group of people who live in tents. And I think, oh my goodness, you know, in weather like this, they're living in tents. You know. And so, you know, it's not to use this reflection in a way where, you know, we all move into tents or into caves. But it's a way of saying, well, what's needed? And again, you know, in this in this society, there's a deep, deeply embedded kind of cultural um, habit of of thinking: the more I have, the happier I'll be; the more comfortable and safe I'll be. And you know, investigate: is that accurate? Is it actually correct? You know, so can we let go of some of our stuff? You know, our things. But I think for me, you know, I mean, I live as a renunciant, and even still, there's times when I need to examine how much stuff I have and whether it's useful and whether I can share it or get rid of it, you know. There's, we had an almsgiving ceremony on Sunday, and people's generosity was incredible, but I have enough batteries to last for a monastery of 30 for a year. got three hammers and two snow shovels and I won't be able to use them. Even me, I can't use three hammers at the same time. <laughs> you know, so I think immediately, all right, so I have the stuff. It's not, I don't need it. What can I do with it? You know, can I find ways of recycling it or exchanging it or sharing it or whatever? But I think the, I mean, for me, the area where this is, so we, we have stuff and then we have routines. You know, how do we organize our daily life so that we have time for what we need? Now, when you've got a family with five children, there's not a whole lot of flexibility in terms of, you know, what you can give up and what you can pack in. So the, the nature of the family dynamic is going to have a huge effect on the kind of things that are going on. But there are also ways of... Um, uh, negotiating with the family certain things that support. And it's not that any one of us is the same as Deepama, but Deepama was a householder. You know, she had a daughter and a grandson, and and she just determined um, one year that everyone was going to be living in noble silence, even living on the eight precepts and spending most of the day meditating. And they did. And... At the end of that, everyone in the family had attained the first stage of insight. You know, well, she's at a different level than most of us, and so it's a slightly different kind of kettle of fish. But the reason why her example is useful to contemplate is because we think that because 
support, but the assumption is is that because we're living in a householder life, then it's categorically not feasible to consider doing things in a particular way. And she said, well, maybe not always true. You know, maybe there are contexts where the family dynamic can actually focus on that way. So I'm not asking you to put yourself in competition with Deepamore or to cause chaos in your family situations. But what that does do is illuminate, all right, if this really is a priority, is there a way where there can be more time that's actually set aside for that? It's uh, negotiated within the family structure. Now, what goes on in India in terms of the way people relate to the matriarch and the family is rather different than what comes on in the United States and what happens here, you know. So, you know, somebody says, I think we're going to spend the next year in eight precepts in noble silence. I imagine you're not going to be that popular. <laughs> but what Deepama does is it opens up the window saying, well, it's not only for monastics, you know. And there might be, you know, a family where the family's willing to spend a day doing that, a month, you know, something that a little bit more reasonable. You know, check it out, I don't know. Or at least there can be an agreement that you can do that a day, a month, and they're not going to hassle you. <laughs> or the traditional way in the monastery is, is that the lay people come on the full moon and the new moon, and then they keep the eight precepts and they spend all night doing meditation. And what I had hoped to do, though my system sort of kind of collapsed with my health being not so strong, or that's a rather understatement these last weeks, is to do um, midnight vigils on the full moon here. And so that would be a time when people could affirm the precepts and we could stay up until midnight and do walking meditation and have a talk and all the rest of that. And it still may be the case that we can figure that out. But, you know, my, I was just reeling from my system just... I was just really unwell, really, really unwell. So I didn't have any energy to think about anything. So, stuff and structures. The big one, the big one, obviously, is the mind. You know, the way we're relating to things. So, I want, I, I, me, this one here, yo, I want... Okay, so I want arises as an object of mind, and most of the time we follow it as an absolute truth. And so this whole thing of looking at renunciation is a way of checking it out. You know, anytime I want arises, is it possible either to put a question mark around that, you know, that that's an absolute truth, or to begin to shift one's attention so that one is not focused on the object of one's desire. And one can either shift it and focus it on something which is wholesome or neutral. Okay. Now, I want I want to have what I want. I want my opinions to be agreed on. I want to have comfort. I want to have pleasure. I want to be somebody important. I want not to be. These are the kinds of desires that we have. Okay. So when we're contemplating in this way, nikama or renunciation, is not about stuff and it's not about structure. It's about what we're doing with our intention. And every time we check out that there's a very strong desire arising in the mind, we begin to shift our focus of attention from absorbing into the desire and the manipulative strategies or other kinds of strategies to get the desire fulfilled into just seeing this is desire. This is desire. 
and move attention away from the whole kind of energy around getting it fulfilled. So I want certain food. I want people to do what I want. I want people to agree with me. I want pleasure. I want affirmation. I want respect. I want to be. I want to be somebody important. I want somebody to see that I'm somebody important. You know, all these I wants. I want to do well. I want to succeed. I want. So it doesn't mean that we sit on our meditation cushion and turn into a vegetable and actually are completely useless and that we don't interact in the world. It means that we're interacting not from this primary place of desire, rooted in self-interest. So this discernment about, well, what is not rooted in self-interest comes back to that other question you know, that we talked about earlier in terms of generosity, wholesome desire and selfish desire and enlightened selfish desire, you know. We're actually doing it for our own self-interest, but our own self-interest includes a whole wider sphere. So renunciation on this level is moving away from thoughts, ideas, having to be right, having to have other people understand or agree or accept or like or whatever. This is not a small topic, you know, because for most of us it absolutely dominates our life. And each of us will have our own particular things about where we get a little bit, you know, off balance around in terms of needing praise, needing acceptance, needing to be needed, needing to have our sense desires satisfied, needing to be somebody special. Or for many people, it can be needing or wanting not to be, you know. So, you know, there can be a whole kind of fixation into sense realm pleasures. So, you know, in this society, it's food and and adventure and sex and entertainment and gadgets, you know, those are like the top five, you know. But in a monastery, it's um, special requisites, <laughs> sugar, <laughs> having things on your own terms, having special routines. I mean, so, you know, the same thing, you know, we are not exempted from these mind states, it's just that our lifestyle limits their expression, you know, so that the you know, the kind of the karmic consequences of some of the ways that we can get up to mischief are often less than in, in a larger sphere. So how does one practice with that? And I think again, you know, one needs to have a basic sense of well being, you know. So one has to constantly return to that as a ground. You know, the sense of you know, good enough, I'm good enough, there's good enough sense of sense of well-being and health and sense of self-respect. And then one observes desire arising as an object in mind and watches the pattern. So one gets curious about the patterning rather than judgmental about the content. Okay. So watch where it gets triggered. Is it food? Is it gadgets? Is it wanting to be somebody special? Is it wanting to succeed? Is it wanting praise? Is it needing to be needed? Okay, so then it's like, oh, you know, curious. Well, I've got 35 in the sense realm department and 25 in the in needing to be somebody important department and I've got 75 in wanting my views and opinions to be acted on as if everyone else agreed they were absolute truth. So then there's a kind of, well, all right, so we have patterns. So then it's like Sesame Street, all right? There's a sense of, well... This is the category where there's a lot of energy going in, and so then there needs to be more energy and persistence in being present when those things arise, because if there's more energy there, there'll tend to be more blindness. It'll tend to be followed more often without actually being seen. 
So there's no room for judgment or there's no use for judgment. Judgment may arise, but that's not helpful. So this is a kind of exploratory investigation of where are these things arising? Where are the patterns? And how am I able to relate to that? So just check it out. All right, so if it arises 75 times, see if there's five when you can let go. You know, So we don't need to do every single time, 100% of the time, in every single circumstances. But let's just see if it's possible, you know, in these categories where there's a lot of energy, whether a percentage of them, that we can actually drop it. I don't need people to agree. I don't need my view to be the one that prevails. I don't need to have the food that I want. I don't need to have the gadget that I want. I don't need to be somebody special. I don't need people to like me, you know, whatever it is. But a few times when these things arise, just try the different experience rather than following it and believing it of bringing one's attention elsewhere. It can be to the breath. It can be to the feet contacting the earth. It can be to the cold air blowing on the face today. It can be the a metta or you know, focusing on the goodness of the other person or what another person might need. So, renunciation is not only about going to caves and living in tents and shaving your head and wearing robes. It's actually an immediate response that everyone can practice and it's actually essential in our practice in working with what's arising in terms of how we're relating to it. Are there any questions? Talk a little more about letting go because I think that's such a buzzword or something in our culture, especially in the quote path that people are on. So, well, letting go is really actually quite simple. It's just a movement of attention, right? It's just actually that much. So oftentimes what happens is is that something arises, a thought or a feeling or an idea or wanting to have something, and our attention is gripped on it, you know, like a Rockweiler, you know, or an eel. It's just fastened, it's locked in. And so letting go is just that, that movement. Okay? It's just that. And then once one has done that, then there's choice. But before one has done that, there's no choice. You're stuck in the the pattern of whatever it is that's arising. Okay? So, you know, you can say, you know, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. It's not a mantra. It's this gesture. Okay? It's like, you know, it's just really, it's just, and it doesn't, it's not a lot. It's just that much. But when you're, when you're, when you're, <laughs> it does seem like a lot because in order for this to release it, it actually, from this to go to that is a significant shift. That's what letting go is. That's what it is. And then once one lets go, then one has an opportunity to choose what you do with your attention. But before you let go, you are, you are, you are being driven. There's no choice. It might seem like there's choice because it's your idea. But it's not. The idea has got you 
and is driving you, you don't have a choice. So it's just the simple movement of attention away from this is mine. I own it. It belongs to me and I have the right to do with it whatever I want. To, oh, this is thought. Or this is desire. Or this is identification. Then once that's there, then you can choose. Well, okay, yes, that's the case. But in fact, what I'm identified with is is, uh, creating something that's going to make it possible for me to live the next six months. So it's not really the greatest thing if I just sort of completely can it, you know. But what happens then is, is that one's relationship with it shifts. So just because one makes this movement doesn't mean that everything goes in the trash can. You know, I don't have to put everything I own into the trash can. But I can learn to relate to it in a very different way, in a much lighter, freer way. And if it goes, it goes. If it comes, it comes. It's like something happened. What was it? Oh, goodness. I was in Toronto once, and I can't, re- I can't remember the circumstances, but somebody, somebody, I think, had promised something. They'd said they were going to offer something, and then it didn't, it didn't come through, which is common. People say they're going to do something, and they don't follow through or whatever. And I was with a friend, and he was a practitioner. And I said, the Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. <laughs> It's like it was never mine to begin with, you know. And so, you know, it's just a completely different relationship with this natural movement than, oh my goodness, you know, and the drama and the disappointment and the fear or the anxiety or whatever. It's like, you know, it was never mine to start with. Yeah. Yeah. I think I can work with what you've been saying, but I, this, this is coming up anyway. Uh, where I get stuck is, I suppose, letting go of an anxiety that's around all the things that I want to have in my life. But there are things like, I want to be available to my friends. I want to complete the commissions I have to do in order to pay the bills. I want to do my own work that's creative work that feels like I have something to offer to the world. I want to go on more hikes. I want to, this has been going on for a couple of years, I seriously want to do clutter clearing, get rid of stuff. And so they're all things that would be good things to incorporate in my life, but then I get overwhelmed in terms of wanting to be and do all those things. Well, that's one of the other kind of um, trademarks of our culture is is that our expectations are high. And and we end up putting ourselves into positions where we cause ourselves anxiety attacks because of that. Okay? So, none of the things that you mentioned are, are incorrect aspirations. But again, what's helpful is to come into right relationship with each one. Okay? So, it's like, you know, you know, having a diary. You pencil it in, but you know that it's not in ink. It can change. Okay? So you make plans, or you have aspirations, or you set intentions, but you recognize, you know, there's, 
normal life and then there's health issues and then there's the chaos that happens in the wider sphere that one is kind of navigating or kind of doing damage control and there's just fluctuations in energies and capacities and you know for myself I have a bright mind I think quick and I've got a big heart and so I would say yes to everything and then realize I just absolutely don't have the capacity to physically manage it so it takes a certain amount of discernment to be able to say, yeah, well, it's not that it's not a bad thing and I would like to do it, but I actually don't have the capacity right now. Or I would have the capacity in a week or two months or whatever. And so, you know, the time framework of, yeah, this is something that I'd like to do, but I can't do everything right now. Okay? So, you know, we had the almsgiving ceremony and I, I knew, I knew that that day was going to be a tiring day even though it was going to be an incredibly joyful day. And I knew I wasn't going to have energy to clean up, and so I, I, helped, I asked people to help with that, and they did wonderful. And they brought all this stuff in the house, and I knew I wasn't going to have a single ounce of energy to put a single thing away. I knew that. You know, I said, just, just write it off. So, you know, after the ceremony, go to bed, and then come here for the Sunday night, beginning of the non-residential retreat. And then Monday, you know, in between sleeping and recovering, you know, pick up bits and pieces and do what you can. So it took me two or three days to put the stuff away and I still haven't finished. There's a whole backlog of rice and things that I need to stash away in the garage. I haven't I haven't started that yet. So for me there was a sense that there was an anticipation that I was going to be tired from the day that I wasn't going to have any energy to do it. And even though I really don't like clutter around my house and I like everything to be neat, I hate boxes. I hate them. You know, I knew that I was just going to have to wait until my energy had enough whatever in it that I could actually manage it. You know, so and that comes with well experience or just you know, you know. So you know, having a clean house is a valuable. You know, having things tidied away, taking care of requisites. These are all important things, but not at the point where I'm hurting myself in order to fulfill it. Yeah. So coming into right relationship with one's aspirations and time frameworks around it all is also really important. And one of the practices, which is not at all an easy practice, is one sense an intention and then lets go of outcome. Okay? That's not an easy practice because we're focused and fixated on outcome. And so we like to have, you know, plan and, you know, strategy and, and time schedules and fulfilling it all and all the rest of that. And my system doesn't work that way. You know, I set an intention and then just let go. And I just like surrender myself into forces that are completely bigger than my own personal sphere and then see what happens. And it doesn't, it's never, for me, I'm not a linear, logical, methodical, I'm not an ox. I'm a tiger. You know, and tigers don't do things methodical. We don't have yokes to ourselves and plod. You know, <laughs> we, we do things in huge bursts of energy and then we sleep for a week. You know, and it's sort of like, that's the, sort of, that's the nature of tiger energy. That's what I do. So I can have hugely productive times and then I'm just completely crashed out. And I just trust it, you know, and then I'll recover in a while and then I'll come back and I'll have some energy. And it's not always completely manic. But, you know, sometimes there is something that resembles vaguely steadiness. <laughs> but rarely. <laughs> and so my life sort of unfolds that way. And I just, you know, I've learned to trust it, you know. But it's really hard being a tiger in an ox monastery because ox monasteries, they expect, you know, plod, you know, routine. They expect everything to be steady, and, you know, nothing to get too exciting. And, 
<laughs> and most of the monasteries I've been to around the planet are ox-organized monasteries, you know, and it's like, you know, anyway. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Yeah. Anything else? I wanted to ask you about precepts mm. um, and what, when you say taking precepts, mm. which I'm familiar with in the Tibetan tradition, what do you mean? Um, taking precepts in this tradition has many different meanings to it. So taking precepts um, um, can be as, as informal as just affirming for the day that you're going to keep the precepts. Okay. It can be something, and so on the on the on the uh, Uposita nights, when the lay community comes to the monastery, it's common that for one night, every two weeks, they take the eight precepts. So they come to the monastery in the evening, they take the eight precepts, and they keep them until whatever the dawn of the next day. So uh, taking the precepts on that level is a way of affirming the five precepts and three renunciation precepts, and they're just temporary. Okay. So each of us needs to come into our own relationship with what is our commitment to precepts. And so in this kind of context, if you come and you take the five precepts, for example, on the almsgiving ceremony, there was an occasion for people to take the five precepts for those who wanted. So there's never, never a situation in our kind of situation where people are forced or somehow intimidated or cajoled. You know, it's just it's really on your own. And it is on, it's on their terms, you know. I don't determine the terms, you know, what it means for you and how long you take it for and how significant it is and how precise and all the rest of that. But it is an ongoing inquiry of how do you relate to precepts in a way which is useful, you know. So that's, that's, a, that's, that's an ongoing topic, you know, of how do you, how do you work with precepts in a way in this lifestyle that actually works for you. Now, taking precepts doesn't mean that one is... It's not a commandment. It's a reflection. Okay? So it's not a thou shalt not, but, you know, one refrains from as a reflection. Okay? Now, for most of us, the precept that tangles us up the lot the most is the one on speech. Okay? So what one can... What is skillful is to use formal occasions of taking the precepts in order to brighten one's conviction and determination to actually stay within the boundaries of the precepts. Okay? That's helpful. Because when you do something publicly, it can be have more energy in it than if you do something privately. And that's why it can be very skillful ceremoniously to have gatherings where precepts are affirmed and one of the things that happens in the monastery, which is a lovely thing, is, is that on New Year's Day, the first thing that happens is people take the refuges and the precepts as a way, you know, the first thing of the New Year in order to start the intention in a way which is wholesome. It's lovely. You know, it's wholesome. It's good. That's the way in which ceremony can be used that's very skillful. So, you know... The, the Theravadan tradition and the Tibetan tradition are different in terms of their commitment to teacher, their t- commitment to, uh, to certain things. And so uh, the Theravadan tradition comes more from the perspective that the teachers are spiritual friends rather than gurus. Now, if there's an ongoing relationship with a teacher, 
you know, the teacher might get to know you well enough, there might be enough faith where the thumbscrews get to start being twisted as a way of bringing a little bit more focus on stuff which is not necessarily easy to pay attention to. And if there isn't a suitable container for it, it's not easy to practice with. But as a teacher, I can see all kinds of things, you know, in terms of what's going on for people and ways to help them practice. But I'm very circumspect about what I say and when and under what circumstances because it's not necessarily helpful to share what I see until the container is right to actually work with it. So one of the things is actually up to the individual about what, how much faith they have, how much trust they have, and how deep they want to go as to what it is that I say and how I say it. So I play it intuitively according to my sense of what's appropriate. But just because I don't say doesn't mean that I don't see. You know. So, does that help? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can, can you list the precepts? The five precepts are to refrain from killing, mm-hmm. to refrain from stealing, to refrain from sexual misconduct, which includes having sex with minors, having sex outside of, with somebody in a com- who's already in a committed relationship. Uh, or having sex in a way where there's harm happening to anybody. The fourth precept has to do with refrain from lying, from harsh, from divisive or frivolous speech. The fifth is to do with refraining from drink or drugs. That's the five precepts. The eight precepts includes refraining from eating after midday, refraining from entertainments, beautification, and adornments, and refraining from um, higher luxurious sleeping places or just luxury, you know, luxurious kinds of situations. So, you know, the fifth precept in this culture, you know, some people say, well, you know, if you have one sip of anything alcoholic, you're completely breaking the precept. And you see, I don't, I don't, I don't feel it's my job to make hardline interpretations for people. I think it's my job to create context where reflection, there's an opportunity for reflection to take place. And I think it's each person's individual responsibility to make decisions about what it means to keep the precept and not keep the precepts. It's not for me to tell you. If you want to talk to me about questions you have, I'm certainly open to talking about it. But it's not for me to decide for another person what's skillful for them in their life. It's just not. That's not suitable. Yeah. But, you know, there's certain things where there are slippery slopes, and alcohol certainly is one of them. You know, and especially if somebody's got issues around substance abuse. My goodness. That goes into the gutter like that. You know, I'll even notice. You know, so it's up to you. Okay. Shall we close? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.